let us start with a prayer, especially asking Our Lady of Sorrows to help us to meditate uh, very beneficially uh, on our Lord's Passion this upcoming week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known, that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession, was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy. Amen. I'd like to welcome all of you here tonight. This is, I'm sorry, in the name of the Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Just kind of like when I have dinner sometimes with the nieces and nephews, it's like, Father, you have to pray. <laughs> I just like to dive into some things. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our final talk of the 2023 Lenten Lecture Series, Architects of Modernity, the Construction of Our Modern Day Babel. The uh, title I know has been talked about by a couple of our speakers. I just wanted to address one little thing is maybe we should have said the Tower of Babel. Uh, because we were referring to the tower that they were building, trying to reach the heights of heaven. In other words, trying to become godlike in of their own accord is really, in a sense, what we were drawing from. Not so much the babble that resulted after God scattered them, although I would say there is a lot of babble today. Dr. Faith Paul teaches literature and religion in the upper school here at St. Agnes. Prior to that, she taught at the University of St. Thomas in the philosophy department alongside her husband, and a who also a philosopher, Tim Paul. She earned a bachelor's degree from Wake Forest University and then taught English in Germany as a Fulbright scholar for a year. She went on to earn her master's and doctorate in philosophy from St. Louis University, where she also met and married her husband. They moved to the Twin Cities in 2008 to work at the University of St. Thomas. In 2019, she and her family adventured to Scotland, where she held a senior research fellowship at St. Mary's School of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews. Dr. Faith Paul and her husband are also proud parents of St. Agnes School students. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Paul as she speaks tonight on feminism, missteps, and insights. All right, how are we doing for sound? Can you hear, hear me back there in the, up in the gallery? Excellent, okay, I'm gonna start a timer to keep myself honest here. This is a bit of a liability because recently my husband made the decision to teach our small, our two youngest children how to send an emergency text message from our desktop computer at home. But they missed the part about emergency. <laughs> and so I just get a lot of random emojis when they're home with their sisters babysitting them. So anyway, my, I might be distracted by my phone lighting up with messages from my youngest children, but don't worry, I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're fine. Um, yeah. So um, I'd like to start tonight uh, by thanking Kelsey Wanless, uh, 
and Father Moriarty for the invitation to be part of this wonderful series. Um, and to thank you for being out here tonight. I know that the weather is nasty. Uh, none of you are probably looking forward to the drive home. And I just have to say, um, it's such an amazing thing to come here to this parish where on a Friday night there's a, uh, a room jam-packed with people who want to think and, and, and learn about things like philosophy or last year about literature and Dante. I mean, I think it's really beautiful the way that this parish encourages and nurtures the, nurtures the life of the mind. Um, and it makes me really, really happy to work here in the school and to be part of this community. Um, so thank you. Um, it's also an honor to be part of this series, which uh, by all accounts has been really fantastic. I've only been able to make it to some of it. but. Um, it's, uh, I'm honored to follow in uh, on the heels of the other speakers that we've had. Uh, the talks I've heard have been really great, so I'm grateful to be part of that. Um, but I also have to say, as happy as I am to be here in front of you, I'm also completely terrified. <laughs> Two reasons. The first is there are some there are some areas of uh, feminist philosophy where I have some expertise and interest in some of the things that I have um, written and thought about uh, in philosophy of religion and in philosophy of the environment. Um, but the the history of feminist philosophy is not something that is my specific area of academic expertise. So um, I might hit a couple of notes a little harder than others because it matches what my interests are philosophically. But I would only be interested in them if they were cool, so I don't think you have to worry about it. But anyway, so I'll just put that out there. The usual caveats, well, I'm not really an expert, but I'm here anyway. This is what you've got. Um, that's the first reason I'm intimidated. The second reason is it turns out people have opinions about feminism. Yeah? I mean, people have some thoughts about it, and it also turns out that I'm one of those people who has opinions. Um, but I'm the one who gets to stand up here today, so they're the ones you get to hear. No, that's actually not true. My goal isn't actually to tell you what Faith Paul um, thinks all about feminism. I really want to present a kind of narrative, a story about the development of feminist thought in the last few centuries um, in a way that maps onto some of the themes that you've been thinking about and talking about in the speaker series about the way that modern thought has changed, about some of the turns that have occurred in modernity. Um, and so I'm going to really focus in on one thinker in particular, Simone de Beauvoir, who probably is emblematic of the biggest changes that happened in feminist thought in the 20th century. I'm going to sandwich that between looking at a couple of other thinkers, some of the early first generation of feminists, um, and then some of uh, later feminists. Uh, and, and so part of what I'm doing is I just want to sort of tell a story about the history of thought here. And I'm not going to give critical commentary about all of it. I just want to sort of put some of these ideas out here for you guys to think about. But also, I won't be able to refrain from giving critical commentary for too long, so don't worry, you'll get some of that too. Um, but you know, typically when we're talking about feminism, part of the problem is that when people, especially when people are really impassioned about it and have strong opinions about it, it's pretty rare that you have people in the same room using the same word the same way. The word feminism means lots of different things. And, uh, and at least in, in the academy and particularly in the discipline of uh, a philosophy, but I think it's also true in literary, um, in literary studies uh, and in, in art history and in history. Uh, there are as many versions of feminism as there are types and flavors of yogurt in the cub food refrigerator aisle, which is to say a near infinite variety. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this. What is this, this creep that has happened over the last, I don't know, decade? By how, did you see how much yogurt there is? <laughs> 
it's absurd. But anyway, there's that amount of variety in feminism because there's not this one school of thought called feminism and to be part of it, you apply, and you submit your application, and it gets reviewed, and you get a letter back, and you get your feminist card in the mail, and then that allows you to shop in the feminist wholesale store, you know, warehouse, where you can buy all of your feminist views in bulk, which is, I mean, I wouldn't want that card necessarily, because personally, I don't like to buy my philosophical positions wholesale anyway, and I think that's actually a pretty good way to think about the intellectual life. But all that to just clear the air and say a little bit of what I need to do here is just get clear on what we're talking about with feminism. And part of the way I want to do that is to just give a little history of people that are considered feminist philosophers, considered themselves feminists, and to just show a little bit of the development of the history of thought. Um, I, uh, you should have a handout. Do people have handouts? Good to see them. You might have to share. Uh, the front is an overly ambitious account of what I'm going to try and do. I already know. We won't get to all of it. Um, the back is some definitions. I handed in a little chart that I'll talk about in a while and a series of questions, um, which serve as a kind of schema to help sort out different t twists and turns in the development of feminism and to sort of uh, carve out some of the logical space of where disagreements lie and how you get these different camps and where they come from. Um, but I've tried to structure this such that if I get through the first half of the outline, you will have gotten your money's worth. And if I don't get to this stuff at the end, then we can talk about it some other time over coffee, okay? That sound good? All right, good. So let's just begin with the definition of feminism. Now, like I said, uh, it's sort of notoriously difficult to define, and people mean different things by it. So I'm just going to give you guys a pretty generic definition. It's actually on the back of um, the handout on the definitions page. This definition comes from the Stanford Encyclopedia, which is just like a very standard, basic reference work in philosophy. Um, and it's this. Feminism is an intellectual commitment and a political movement that seeks justice for women and the end of sexism in all forms. Okay, So there's two parts to what it is. It's an intellectual movement or a school of thought, you might say. And it also has practical or political ends of, of, of improving the world, increasing equality, making the world a better place for men and women by getting rid of sexism. Right Now, by this definition right here, I mean, it's pretty generic. It's so generic that I'd be pretty surprised if lots of, if anybody in here would really like not want to call themselves a feminist by this standard. right? Like. Who likes injustice? <laughs> Who's into sexism, right? Especially, and I got I got I like definitions. Here's a definition of sexism. This is what I mean by it. Simply, the belief and action inspired by that belief that one sex is inferior to or less valuable than the other. Okay, that's what I mean by sexism there, right? And we all think injustice and sexism are bad. So there shouldn't be anything controversial. We can sort of wrap up the game and go home now. Um, but of course, there are disagreements about what counts as sexism, right? And the extent, um, the extent that sexism is present in our society. And people are going to look at that differently. And some people are going to say, yeah, this is a problem. There is sexism and discrimination in this domain of human life. And other people are going to say, ah, no, I don't really see that, OK? Um, and then there are also going to be questions about what is entailed by this demand for justice to be done um, for equality for women? What does it really mean to have a society where men and women have equal rights? And what are all of the rights that go into that? So there's, there's plenty of room for disagreement within this definition. But I'm using it, and we're going to start there, OK? Now, here's a brief, like, 
bird's eye view of how people talk about the history of feminism. And this might be familiar to a lot of you. Uh, it's a metaphor, it's flawed, but it gets us somewhere. It's the idea that feminism and the history of feminism came in waves. Have you heard this before? The various waves of feminism, possibly you've heard this, okay? So the first wave, uh, People sort of debate about when to start counting it. Some people go back to like Plato um, and consider him a first wave feminist, which is a little generous in my estimation. But like, <laughs> basically, I mean, not the feminist part. I think he actually had some really interesting ideas about equality and about um, how to let women actualize their gifts in the polis. But um, but but basically, when people talk about the first wave, they talk about. What led up to the events of people advocating for legal and political change in society, particularly with suffrage, the right to vote, with the right to own property or to inherit property, and um, with access to education. And so uh, the first wave feminists were, um, were just fighting for a place at the table for women in those spheres of public life um, on, on, on the conviction that the shared human dignity of men and women, the same human dignity that justifies why men should be allowed to vote, should be allowed to have private property or inherit property from their fathers, uh, that that same inherent dignity um, would also justify women having those rights too. Um, so that was mostly the first wave, and it was happening largely in the 19th and early 20th century. Now the idea with waves of feminism is that there was sort of like, a, there was a lot of movement around questions, and then there was kind of a lull, things got quiet for a while, and then something else came along. Um, and that, that sort of does line up with the way people are talking about the difference between the first wave and the second wave, because there's a period in like the 40s and 50s where there, wasn't a, there weren't a lot of people, self-identified feminists, who were really like having much of a public voice, either in the academy and political life. People looked and they're like, well look, women got the right to vote, that's great. In most states, people can, women can own property and inherit property. It's no problem, right? So we've, we've made it, right? It's like, I don't know, my mom smoked these cigarettes in the 80s called Virginia Slims. I don't know if you remember the logo for these. Anybody remember that logo? What was it? You've come a long way, baby, right? <laughs> that was the idea, right? So, um, but the second wave of feminism picks up kind of in the 60s. And the motto to keep in mind for this wave is the, is the personal is the political. So if the first wave was about gaining some basic political rights, the second wave was looking at aspects of people's personal lives, of looking at, um, at looking at people's domestic situations, at looking at the institution of marriage, at looking at how men and women share labor in the home, at looking at the women's place in the workplace, um, looking at uh, things in society that uh, perpetuate the objectification of women. So thinking about pornography, um, thinking about prostitution. Um, these are things in the second wave that people are starting to um, ask questions about um, with the idea that uh, when they say the personal is the political, I think they mean political in the sense that the philosopher Aristotle meant it, which is um, not necessarily just with like positive law, what legislators talk about, what's going on at the Capitol or in DC, but political in the sense of how do we arrange society in a way where the polis is going to flourish, where the people within the community are gonna have social lives that actually sustain the common good. And so the second wave is thinking about, well, let's, let's kind of get to the bottom of why it's only been for, well, at that point, like, you know, 30 years that women have been able to vote. We've, we've had this whole democratic idea for a while. Why'd we just not get the vote, right? 
What was going on there? So there's a lot of sort of um, trying to interrogate conceptions of masculinity and femininity that happened in this wave, okay? And so the thinker I want to focus on mostly, Simone de Beauvoir, this French existentialist, she came before the second wave, between the first and the second, and was incredibly influential. Um, so she's a good person to think about and to know about because some of her ideas really took root um, and, and deeply influenced a lot of what feminists were doing. Um, in ways that I think some of which are positive and some of which I think are, are pretty negative. But then what, we see to hap well, then what we see happening, beginning in the first wave, is that feminism is no longer a thing. This is when it sort of divides into all of these different streams and all of these different branches or fields of feminist thought. Um, and one of the things I want to kind of argue tonight is that a version of feminism is really only as good as its background assumptions about philosophical questions about human nature, about human flourishing, about the nature of freedom. Um, nobody comes to questions about the equality of women and how women and men should be treated in society without a set of background assumptions about what the human person is, what makes for a good society, what is justice and how do we achieve it? Um, and so starting in the second wave, you've got all these different versions of feminism. There's liberal feminism, there's Marxist feminism, there's continental feminism, there's analytic feminism, there's, um, there's like radical feminism, there's lesbian feminism, there's, I mean, you just name it and there are all these different schools. And at this point, you're starting to get as much disagreement between schools of philosophy, schools of thought, as there would be agreement among these people. Um, and then there are two sort of, people talk about two subsequent ways there's third wave philosophy and I'm not joking when you look up like what defines third wave philosophy it's just a list of different kinds of feminisms like there's not some overarching ideological bent that everybody in the third wave shares um, there is a real focus on um, questioning the very notions of sex and gender themselves and there's a lot of um, a lot of this sort of current movement around revisionary gender concepts having more expansive understanding of gender a lot of that is kind of coming up in the third wave and then the fourth wave I don't even know what that is I mean we're in it I don't really understand it I don't know I'm sorry I'm not gonna be much help here all right, so let me start with the first wave. Some ladies in the first wave, which like I said, the first wave is kind of, honestly, it's kind of an artificial distinction. It's just sort of like everybody before things started getting crazy. That's sort of how I understand it. And very often, very often when you hear um, Christian women, Catholic women talking about the history of feminism, the story is something like this. First wave, good. Other waves, real bad. <laughs> That's not my view, but there are some things that change that I think really have very negative effects in society. So I want to think about those, but um, but I also really want to think about the positive. So let's just do this, right? We ready? Let's do this. Enough clearing my throat. That took a long time. Um, okay, so. I'm gonna start with two of my favorite old school feminists, and they are Mary Wollstonecraft and Anna Julia Cooper, all right? Um, so, like I said, nobody comes to questions about equality for women, what the roles of men and women in society should be, without a set of background assumptions about the nature of the human person and what constitutes the human good. And one thing that these two thinkers and many thinkers within the first wave of feminism hold in common is what I'm gonna call a very standard natural law account of ethics and, poli and politics. 
And so here's what I mean by a natural law account. It's going to be pretty familiar because this is very much coming out of the Christian intellectual tradition, particularly in thinkers like Thomas Aquinas and the scholastics that followed him, but also coming through lots of American political thought, um, especially in civil rights thinkers. Um, you know, I, I, yeah. So anyway, this is going to sound familiar. You're going to be familiar with this story, OK? All right, what does it mean to say that an account of ethics is a natural law account? The first thing is this. They think that people have natures, OK? There is such a thing as human nature. And we might disagree about what that means. We might disagree about what that entails. But there is a sort of givenness to being human. And in the natural law tradition, that givenness comes from God. It's an expression of design order, of design providence, of ordering the universe in such a way toward the common good, toward the good of all. All right. So that's the first thing about natural law theory. It says people have natures. Now, I've got some definitions of natures on the back. I told you I like definitions. All right. I have two definitions of nature. I'm mostly going to be talking about nature subscript one here. But at the very end, if I get to talk about ecofeminism, which is my favorite, <laughs> then I'll have to talk about the other kind of nature. All right. But here is, here is uh, nature, the definition of nature one. It's largely from Aristotle and Thomas, but you know, maybe tweaked a little bit. A nature is the essence of a thing which spells out a set of powers and possibilities a thing has according to being a member of its kind. All right. So any natural thing, that is any non-artificial thing, has a nature that spells out the potential or power for what it can be, what it can actualize. All right. And traditionally, in natural law accounts of ethics and politics, when we talk about human nature, we talk primarily about those things that distinguish humans from other kinds of natural things. And we think of that primarily in terms of reason and will. And in a Christian context, this possession of reason and will is what we locate in the human being as that part of us that bears witness to the divine. All right. So it might not exhaust what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. But in the tradition, when we think about human nature and how we aren't just bearing some aspect of the goodness of God, but in fact, we're bearing some aspect of the goodness of God that reflects his inner being in a way though just analogously. Um, and that is that we have reason and we have will. And will is just that part of our intellect that chooses. It's a hunger for the good. Okay, So this is a very traditional the sort of first plank of natural law theory. Um, the next is that any human laws that we create are just only insofar as they fit with God's divine plan with the moral order that God has instituted. Okay, So laws are just or unjust, fair or unfair, depending on whether they actually square with. Martin Luther King Jr. describes this beautifully. He uses these analogies of, of, of uh, human laws squaring with the divine law, just like a carpenter is going to see if what they are making is square, that things fit together. Or, um, or he talks about. Uh, Harmony, right? Uh, human law has to be in harmony with the, with the eternal law, with God's moral order that he's put in the universe in order to be just or fair, right? So it's sort of a top-down kind of morality. But the way that we discern the principles of natural law are through the use of practical reason. So one of the things in the natural law tradition, especially in the Catholic Church, is this idea that the truths of, of morality are discoverable by reason. Um, 
And we could get there even without the help of revelation, though most of us need the help of revelation. So that's to say that these principles are available to, to all comers, regardless of their background beliefs or faith commitments or something like this, right? So we can reason in the public square using natural law principles, okay? So that's what I mean when I say that the, these next two thinkers are going to think about are in the natural law tradition, OK? So let's start with Mary Wollstonecroft. She was dope. <laughs> I'm a fan, OK? Um, so like I said, both these thinkers are very committed Christians. They're both Anglicans. We can, we can forgive them for that. I mean, <laughs> Wollstonecroft was British, and Anna Julia Cooper was an Anglican because those are the people who educated her, and she had been born into slavery. So that makes sense. Um, Wollstonecroft was born in 1759. Uh, she died in 1797. And her most famous work is called A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Now, uh, in this, in this um, essay that she writes, she is arguing for suffrage. She's arguing for women having the right to vote. But she's doing a lot more than just that. What she is, what she's doing, um, first and foremost, is thinking about what kind of education women need. Before anything else, Wollstonecraft is an educator. And, um, and in her day, in the 18th century in England, women are beginning to have access to education. Like really, toward the end of the Renaissance, more and more women are having access to more formal kinds of education, whether it be by tutors or some sort of schooling. Now mind you, it was probably just the aristocratic families. It was just the wealthy women that had access to this. But women are getting an education. But Wollstonecraft was just not satisfied with what that education consisted in. Most of it was superficial and silly and mostly was just decorative, okay? And if you to think, to sort of envision what I'm talking about there, have you ever read a Jane Austen novel, <laughs> right? Or a George Eliot novel? The kind of education that those smart, smart women in those books get and that they bristle at, right? Where they're just being taught to like embroider and sit on very elegant but uncomfortable furniture, you know? <laughs> like, the whole point of education at, in, in Wollstonecraft's time period for women, in her view, was to make women attractive as wives, not even interesting or helpful, just attractive, and to make them consumers, all right? To make them acquisitive, to make them want to buy more things. Um, and so, uh, and she, she was like, well, this is silly. You should, that's wonderful that we want to educate women, but what are we educating them for? And so she wants to take a step back and just think about what education is for at all. And she goes back to a very classical model of education, the sort of ideal of the classical liberal arts, that the reason that we should learn and study, all of us, is because in looking at the perennial tradition and looking at these works of literature and philosophy and theology that have stood the test of time, we encounter ideas that push us to develop reason and to curb our appetites so that we are ruled by reason instead of by mere passion, okay? So that's the sense in which the classical liberal arts are liberal, they are liberative. They liberate us from enslavement to our passions, right? And that, I mean, and that's the sort of prevailing philosophy of education through the ancient and through the medieval period. And she's like, yeah, that sounds good. That's what the girls want. That's what we want. We want, she was primarily concerned with an education in virtue and education in virtue. So um, she says, 
Where's this quote? I want to show, here's a quote from her, I want to show that elegance is inferior to virtue, that the most praiseworthy ambition is to obtain a character as a human being, whether male or female, and that lesser ambitions should be tested against that one. All right? So that's her educational philosophy right there. Um, but to do that, to give women the kind of education that's really going to challenge them to, to fully realize their potential as rational, free beings, um, we're going to have to rethink what the purpose and aim of education is. All right? so, um, so a scholar, Wollstonecroft, Sylvia Tomaselli, explains what Wollstonecroft sort of critique was here. All right? It's that women, this is a quotation, women were ill-prepared for their duties as social beings and imprisoned in a web of false expectations that would inevitably make them miserable. She wanted women to become rational and independent beings whose sense of worth came not from their appearance but from their inner perception of self-command, self-control, and knowledge. Women had to be educated. Their minds and bodies had to be trained. This would make them good companions, wives, mothers, and citizens. Above all, it would make them fully human. That is, beings ruled by reason and characterized by self-command." End quote. Okay? So Vindication of the Rights of Woman, it sort of universally acknowledges this like watershed moment in the history of feminism. And it's beautiful, right? This is a beautiful vision of, of what we want for our daughters, of what we want for ourselves. Um, now, part of what she was arguing here for was not merely the opportunity for education and virtue, but um, she really wanted to help women to become not independent, but to avoid being completely dependent. And here's what, she, here's what I mean by that, right? Wollstonecroft had no problem, in fact, loved the institutions of marriage and family. She thought that the right kind of education makes a woman a better wife and a better mother and a better caretaker for her elderly parents and a better neighbor and all of those things. So the point of education and the point of liberation is not to be liberated from bonds of responsibility. It was rather to be liberated from our worst selves so that we can keep those responsibilities better. And in that, though, she really thought it makes sense to, to educate women so that they would not be completely financially dependent on their husbands. Now, she's thinking primarily here about widows. How can we improve women's education so that when they are widowed, they are not forced into circumstances that they don't want to be forced into. And how, okay, all right, how many people here have read Pride and Prejudice? I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to read the room here. Yes, a lot of ladies. All right, okay, right. So here's where Wollstonecroft would have just really, really, really been with Elizabeth Bennet. So Elizabeth Bennet is this like high-minded, sort of feisty character. She's got this friend who's brilliant and sweet and wonderful and is a little bit older, Charlotte, right? Charlotte Lucas. And Charlotte Lucas is an absolute catch, but she's kind of old and hasn't met anybody, right? So people think it's just pretty much over for her. And there's this really, really, really dreadful guy named Mr. Collins and he's a dweeb and he's awkward and kind of rude and boastful um, but he's got a stable life all right he's he's, he's going to be a parson for and as he likes you to know for Mrs. Catherine de Berg a very famous fancy rich woman so he's going to live comfortably and whoever marries him is going to have a decent comfortable life and Charlotte Lucas who is smart she is prudent she is good she marries him does she love him 
Well, not at first. She comes to love him, and that's something admirable about him. But there's no friendship. There's no friendship that motivates this, all right? It's purely a marriage of convenience. And Wollstonecraft thought this is a deep problem in her culture that women are forced, and men are forced, to marry out of a mere sense of convenience instead of out of, uh, out of bonds of friendship and with the desire to create a household where people are growing in the kind of virtue that Wollstonecraft wants women and men to be educated in. All right. So this is part of her vision of education too, is to allow women to be able to support themselves, not so that they can cut the apron strings and abandon their households, but that so we have communities of interdependence where men and women can support each other and women can stand on their own if something happens to their, to their husbands and for all those women out there who don't want to marry Mr. Collins, <laughs> that they don't have to, that they can live fulfilling and wonderful lives and use their God-given talents and grow in virtue and not have to marry, right? But that seemed like the necessity to Wollstonecraft. So, so she's sort of arguing for changing the ways that we think about marriage. Um, but, but in the process of all this, she says, like, while we're at it, though, can we let women vote? All right? And here's her argument for that. And this is where I say it's clearly in a natural law tradition. She argues this. This is the quotation. When men fight for their freedom, fight to be allowed to judge for themselves concerning their own happiness, isn't it inconsistent and unjust to hold women down? I know that you firmly believe that you are acting in the manner most likely to promote women's happiness in restricting the, the voting rights to men. Um, but who made man the exclusive judge of that if woman shares with him the gift of reason? Okay? And this is the idea here is that, um, that women have the gift of reason too, and the thing that men and women alike need to remember is that it's a gift. It's a God-given capacity. All right? All right, so that's Wollstonecraft. Pretty cool, right? I mean, she gets a little loopy later in life, does some wild things, changes her mind about some things, but you know. As the kids say, vindication of the rights of women is a bop. It's good. OK. All right, next thinker I want to talk about. Where are we? How am I doing with time? Where did my timer go? But there are no emojis, so that's good news. All right, Anna Julia Cooper, 100 years later, Great. Anna, oh, I do need to speed up. Right. Anna Julia Cooper, uh, she was born into slavery in North Carolina, in Raleigh, uh, but was freed. Emancipation happened when she was a young girl. She got the opportunity to go to school, and she was really good at it. I mean, we're talking Phyllis Wheatley good at school, okay? And she, um, so she was uh, flourishing in her classes and the difficult classes, in particular classes in Latin and Greek um, and in higher math were reserved. They were the gentlemen's courses, but she lobbied for a petition to take them and of course she did really well in them and then she invited her friends to take them and then lots of girls were taking them and lo and behold, the girls were doing pretty well. And the gentlemen's classes, so her school stopped calling them gentlemen's classes, all right? Cooper is also an edu educator uh, for and foremost. Um, and uh, her classic work is called A Voice from the South. And one of the things that Cooper is best known for is not just advocating for access to education for women, but specifically for women of color. Because in her day, you had women coming on the heels of people like Wollstonecraft saying, yeah, let's let women get educated. Let's let women develop their rational and creative gifts, right? But those women weren't necessarily out there pumping for their sisters of color to be in there, all right? And at the same time, we have a growth, we have this sort of inauguration of the University for African American Men. And you have these institutions of higher learning, you know, have this sort of, this lead up to people like W.B. Du Bois, for instance, arguing for why we have to allow access to higher education for people of color, but really they were only just looking out for the men. 
And she was saying, guys, let's just be consistent here, okay? Let's look at the principles that justify we, why we think women should be allowed to get, have education. It has to do with reason and will. And let's look at the reason why we think African-American men should be allowed to have education, and let's just be consistent, right? So um, contemporary feminists really love Anna Julia Cooper because they think she's like really into something called intersectionality. Has anybody heard this word before? It's a cool new word. It's actually, this, the, the concept itself is pretty cool. It's the idea that the kinds of discrimination that people face, um, it's multi-layered. And people face discrimination in different kinds of ways, right? The way that white women might experience discrimination is going to be different than the way that black women are going to experience discrimination. So here's just a quick example, totally unobjectionable, talk about intersectionality, right? So in the second wave of feminism, women are starting to want to be liberated from the drudgery of domestic work. Uh, they don't want to be forced to stay home and take care of their children. They want to be out in the workplace, and they're fighting for it. Um, but it's all white women that are saying this. And then some black feminists say, like, you know, we want to stay home with our kids. We don't want to. We don't want to just do domestic labor for other people's households. We want to be able to raise our children and be stay-at-home moms if we want to be. So how do we make that happen, right? That's just an example of intersectionality. Now this word has taken on a life of its own, um, as all things do. It's just the law of entropy. But. Um, uh, but Anna Julia Cooper was into intersectionality before it was cool. I just want to put that out there, all right? Um, and she encountered this argument that if you allow women to become highly educated, they are de-sexed. They will become less feminine with education. And she had no truck with this, all right? She said, and, and, and she says exactly what Wollstonecraft says. Look, if women are educated, in the liberal tradition, they will be better mothers and they will be better women. It's not to say that those are necessities for being good mothers, absolutely, or necessities for being good wives, but if you give women the opportunity for a certain kind of education, it's going to help them care for society better. And Cooper furthermore believed that we needed more women in the public sphere in politics in particular, but also in education and all kinds of institution in life because the world needs some help from women. The world needs a woman's touch, is the way she puts it. Right? She thinks that there are certain uh, feminine virtues that don't get enough airtime. Uh, and that, in particular, she talks about mercy, compassion, attentiveness, care, these kinds of ideas. Um, and if we allow women to, to be in the public sphere and to bring these distinct virtues to bear. One, we're going to see that men can develop these virtues too, and many of them have them. And there's going to be a kind of balance. There's going to be a kind of balance there. So she's kind of what some people might call a complementarian and sort of contemporary jargon. OK, all right, Cooper and Wollstonecraft. i got to move on, because I don't know. I'm just getting warmed up. That's a problem, because I don't have that much time left. All right, let's talk about De Beauvoir, right? Because that's when things get weird. All right. So skip forward. It's the late 1940s. It's France. There's this guy with really funny glasses, and his name is Jean-Paul Sartre. He's, a, he's an existentialist philosopher, OK? And here's a little mini thesis of mine. If something goes really wrong in philosophy, it probably started in France. <laughs> seems consistent with some of the things you guys have talked about in this lecture series, am I right? I mean, I can blame some stuff on Descartes anyway. So Jean-Paul Sartre was sort of the father of the school of philosophy known as existentialism. 
And existentialism is the view, the sort of shorthand of it, is that existence precedes essence. And essentially what that is, it's the rejection of the notion of nature in the, in the way I've defined it here on the back of the sheet. Remember, a nature is a set of traits, behaviors, and expectations associated with biological sex um, and constructed, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong one, <laughs> nature. The essence of a thing which spells out a set of powers and possibilities a thing has according to its being a member of its kind. Um, Sartre doesn't think that humans don't have like patterns or set behavior sort of determined by their biological existence. He just denied that those things were meaningful. We can't look at our biology, we can't look at our lives as embodied beings, and we can't look at any sort of, we can't point to anything metaphysical about the human person that it gives, explains what makes our lives meaningful. In fact, there's really no hope for that. The only thing we can do is create meaning for ourselves. All right, so I don't know, how many of you guys were here when we talked about Nietzsche? Nietzsche, I know some of you were here when we talked about Nietzsche. Um, I wasn't, but probably y'all talked about God being dead. Did you? Yeah. Okay, good, right? So Sartre and his pals are like, well, God's dead. We could be nihilists like Nietzsche, which would involve cool mustaches, but <laughs> they wanted to have some kind of hope some kind of hope that life could be meaningful. And the only way that people like Sartre saw it, being atheist and looking around the devastation and destruction of the world wars and the sheer irrationality of it all, was to create meaning. And the way that we create meaning is by asserting our freedom in the world, asserting ourselves, and creating ourselves in our own image. That doesn't. When you put it like that, it doesn't sound like it's going to work out very well. But uh, this is existentialism, OK? Now, along comes Simone de Beauvoir. She was a classmate of Sartre's. She, she like sort of beat him out in some stuff at school. It kind of made him mad. But they you know, fell in love. They were a thing. And uh, so, so here's, here was count number one that Simone de Beauvoir had against her in the feminist club. She had a boyfriend. <laughs> and furthermore, people thought she was maybe just riding on his coattails. Now, it turns out she had lots to say that went above and beyond what Sartre did. But she saw herself, before seeing herself as a feminist, as an existentialist. All right? Now, let's think about what this might mean if you are an existentialist and you're thinking about what it means to be a woman. Well, De Beauvoir says, one isn't born a woman, one becomes a woman. One isn't born a woman, one becomes a woman. Kind of confusing, right? And the idea is that there's not some innate, eternal essence of being a woman that all women participate in, but rather there's just this set of societal expectations. And there's a script that we follow, and we follow it, and it's just sort of generated by convention and passed along across the years through tradition. And, um, and that's the end of the story. Okay, so that's the sort of existentialist part of her uh, of her philosophy. You guys are really lucky. I'm so low on time. I'm not going to talk to you about Hegel. All right, <laughs> that's probably that's really for the best. I knew it was for the best, but I put it on the outline anyway. I'm sorry. Um, now, here's what I really like about De Beauvoir's work. Um, the title of her most famous book. I'm going to show it to you because it's really big, and I want you to be impressed. I didn't, I've never actually read the whole thing because it's 900 pages, but I've read a lot of it. Several times, okay? So I kind of know what I'm talking about here. But the title of this book is The Second Sex. The Second Sex. And her idea in diagnosing sexism in the world is that we look at men and we see that as the default way of being in the world. 
the norm in the standard is male. And being a woman is just a negation of that. It's just, well, what's a woman? Oh, a woman's just not a man, okay? And this is the idea of being the second sex. Now, I'm gonna use a little bit of French, philosophy, language, it's gonna sound sort of silly. Just roll with it for a little bit, right? We treat women as the other, with a capital O, we other women, all right? Uh, men experience their own subjectivity, their own way of being in the world and looking out on the world. And women experience being in the world as being the object of male attention, okay? So men just go out into, this is how, I don't, I mean, this is how De Beauvoir characterizes it. I don't know, I'm not a man, so I don't know what it's like to walk out in downtown St. Paul, but you know. But you guys just walk out in downtown St. Paul and you walk around and you take in the sights and you see things just through your eyes, right? You just, you just have this subjectivity, this outlook on the world, and that's the normal way to see the world. But then there's the, the female way to see the world, and it's other, it's different, right? Now how many of you think that men and women are, like, in at least some important ways, different? think men and women are different, right? There's a real legitimate sense in which they're other from each other. But she thinks that uh, the problem with sexism is that we see women as other with a capital O, meaning they're always the other. There's not a context in when being a woman is just a normal, ordinary way to be in the world. It's just being in the world as not a man. Okay, this is part of the idea. She talks about this in terms of alterity. And she wants to understand this. She wants to sort of dig into this and make sense of why this is happening. And I have four minutes, okay. <laughs> and her idea is this. There is something about the roles that women have been assigned in society that have left them trapped as objects instead of subjects, instead of subjects. And she wants to give an account of that. Why is it that we think of men as the norm and women as the other? There's sort of parallels in this idea, idea, idea of alterity um, in the way that people are gonna talk about other bad isms, like racism, for instance, right? That white is the default, like that's the way people are. Uh, you know, what color are Band-Aids? They're the color of white people's skin. What color are ballet shoes? The color of white girl feet. What color is a flesh-colored crayon? Well, up until the world came pretty woke, it was, you know, somebody pasty white, white like me from Ireland, right? Um, it's a similar idea, right? The default is the male, the woman is the other, and this is problematic. And here's where she thinks it comes from. A long time ago, when we were transitioning from being a hunter-gatherer society and moving into agriculture, uh, it was dangerous. It was fraught with danger all over the place, and, uh, and men had to protect the group, and women had to stay home and take care of the babies, and that was a trap. That was a trap. Women were enslaved to domestic labor, and let me, I'll just, let me read this quotation. All right, so she says, in pre-agricultural societies, the burdens of reproduction represented for women a severe handicap in the fight against a hostile world. All right, I'll just, I'll just read her word. She's so better than me, okay. Um, there are female animals that derive total autonomy from motherhood. Serve you. So why has woman not been able to make a pedestal for herself from it? Even in those moments when humanity most desperately needed births, 
since the need for manual labor prevailed over the need for raw materials to exploit. And even in those times when motherhood was the most venerated, maternity was not enough for women to conquer the highest rank. The reason for this is that humanity is not a simple, natural species. It does not seek to survive as a species. Its project is not stagnation. It seeks to surpass itself. Her vision of human flourishing and the human good is for humans to transcend themselves, to go above and beyond what we're labeled, what we're saddled with by way of nature, to transcend that, to rise above that. And there's something about the nature of the work that women do de Beauvoir argued, that prevents that from happening. So she says, because housework alone is compatible with the duties of motherhood, woman is condemned to domestic labor, which locks her into repetition and eminence, that is like only being a body, not being a soul, okay? Day after day, it repeats itself in identical form from century to century. It produces nothing new. Where on the other hand, men gets to impose his reason and will on the world so that it bears the mark of his intelligence. The man is able to transcend the material conditions of his existence, but the woman never does. So she sees in the work world of the woman no opportunity for change, no opportunity for things improving, no opportunity for anything new. Now, I'll tell you, she's right about this much. Laundry never ends, <laughs> right? I mean, it just never ends. It's sort of the bane of our existence, right? Although, fun fact about my family, my husband does way more of the laundry than I do. So. <laughs> Looking at you, babe. Good job. Thanks. Yeah. All right? Right. Domestic work is drudgery. She's not wrong. But what she's arguing is that there are no marks of human intelligence on it. There's no mark of human intelligence on it. And so for a woman to choose to be in the home is to is to give away her birthright of, rational, of, of using reason and freedom to create herself as something new, as something better. Now, I don't know why she thinks that men's work is so much more liberating. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's some drudgery in work that's traditionally associated with men, too. OK, right. But her idea is that women don't get to choose what kind of work they do when the work they do sucks. Therefore, what they need to do is to leave behind the servitude of the home. OK? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and draw this here to a close so we can do some questions and answers here. But I'm going to draw some big picture comparisons between that first wave that we talked about and De Beauvoir. All right? I like, I like how De Beauvoir talks about alterity. I think it gives us a really helpful way to think about what it means to objectify people to treat people as objects, okay? To treat people, to reduce them to something less than what they are. Now, I don't know if it is as pervasive as she says it is in history, but I mean, you read the myths and the stories and the literature through the centuries, and there's a whole lot of treating women like they didn't have much going on up here, and they're mostly just bodies, all right? Um, I think our concept of alterity can, can really bear some fruit when we think about it, about what it means to objectify people, um, what it means to treat people uh, instead of having an I-thou relationship, seeing you as another person with a mind and with reason and desires, um, as somebody who bears the image of God, and instead treating you just like an object to deny that divinity in you, okay? I think that's super helpful. Um, but here's what De Beauvoir is doing that I think is very different from those first wave feminists and that I think has really pernicious consequences. And it's this idea that freedom depends on cutting the bonds 
that tie us together. Freedom consists in liberation from responsibilities of care. Freedom consists in only finding as morally binding those relationships that you freely enter into, which in my view is one of the biggest problems with modern society. And that's a problem that you don't just find in feminism. It's a problem that you find across all different kinds of philosophical and political outlooks. Certain, lots of forms of political economy. They're going to deny this idea that we have obligations to care for people if we didn't contractually agree to be with them, right? If we didn't choose them, like, these are the people I'm going to care about, right? My neighbors, forget them. I didn't pick my neighbors. I just picked my house, right? You know, my, you know, I didn't choose to get pregnant. So I don't have to take care of this baby, right? Right, I mean, you see this sort of mentality of liberation from domestic drudgery completely justifying abortion on demand, okay? Uh, but we also see this in our lack of solidarity for, with our neighbor, with the people that God puts in our community right around us. I didn't choose for this person to start panhandling in my neighborhood, so I don't have to help them. Right? So, so this is a real problem, I think, that finds roots in de Beauvoir and some of her contemporaries, this idea that to really assert our freedom in the world, we have to cut ties, that we have to get rid of our dependencies and those that are dependent on us. That's the only way to freedom. Because what I think is really insightful in thinkers like Wollstonecraft and Cooper, and this will be the last thing I want to say here, is that they weren't advocating for absolute independence for anybody. They were acknowledging the reality of interdependence. That people are only going to thrive in society if we take care of one another. And that's the work of men and women. And we want people to be able to support each other and to make, and to make free choices in doing that while still recognizing that just being part of a community makes demands on us of care and concern. All right. So the way to find freedom is not to cut the ties. It's to see where those ties are and to understand how it is that in, in liberating ourselves from vice and pursuing virtue, we're able to really care for one another as a community. And so if you know, I had better time management skills, we would have talked about something called ethics of care movement, which was this pretty cool period in feminism in the 1990s. It's not so popular now, but I like it a lot. That basically is just advocating for these traditionally feminine virtues of care, responsibility, of trust, that we need to emphasize, emphasize those as much as we do principles, abstract principles of justice, OK? Um, and then we'll just talk about ecofeminism another day, all right? Anybody here wants to talk to me about ecofeminism? It's on, OK? All right, let me stop there. Thank you for your patience. I know we went kind of long, but I'm going to do some Q&A, if there's some time. I don't know how much time there is. We'll do Q&A, and again, one thing you could do is just come right out and ask, just could you briefly say something about care ethics or ecofeminism? You can ask those questions. <laughs> That's called manipulation. It's up to you. It's up to you. All right. Hello. Hello, Joseph. I have never heard you repeat the word the feminism before, so could you give, could you give me a two-minute summary of what you're <laughs> <laughs>
That's beautiful. And that's such a smart question. Thank you, Joseph. Um, Ecofeminism is a, it's a view that became popular in the late 80s and early 90s um, that was thinking about the ecological crisis and the sort of problems that we're looking at in the world in terms of um, deforestation, pollution, habitat loss, uh, rising global temperatures, ocean pollution, plastic pollution, all of these things, and trying to diagnose what sort of societal attitudes and structures make it so easy for us to keep participating in the patterns that contribute to that. And the ecofeminists say, dude, it's just the same thing that makes sexism be perpetuated. And it's a kind of chauvinism. They talk about, they talk about twin chauvinisms. And in the way that um, societies uh, seek to dominate women and to limit their possibilities and, and to do this using technology, right? To sort of to manipulate nature with technology and human, we're doing the same thing in the natural world. And so what the ecofeminists are arguing for is the same sort of virtues that the care ethicists are concerned with. Like, how do we inculcate virtues of care and responsibility and attentiveness to um, the health of the planet? And, the, and, she, and they think that that tracks what are traditionally seen as feminine virtues. And so just talking about abstract principles of justice is not really going to help us to solve our ecological problems. It's not going to get us very far. What we have to do, and this is one of my very favorite ecofeminists, Wendell Berry. That's kind of a joke. He's not. But he is. He is an ecofeminist. He doesn't call himself that. Um, you know, he says, we're not going to take care of something unless we love it. And so what ecofeminists are saying is that we have to love creation. They, I mean, some of them are Christians and say creation. Some of them say Mother Earth. I mean, that's weird, but whatever, right? <laughs> We're working for the same thing here, I think. Uh, you have to love it in order to take care of it. And, and, uh, and looking at sort of feminine virtues is going to allow us to figure out how to do that. And getting away from patterns of wanting to dominate and manipulate nature is going to be the way. So a lot of what they have to say is really echoed in themes in Laudato Si about this sort of technocratic approach to dominating nature and manipulating the world to suit our purposes in ways that ignore the value and, and, and beauty of the way God made the world. Is that good? Yeah, that right, there's some cool stuff and some crazy stuff, so I say go check it out. Right. <laughs> yep, you would add? Uh, so, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. So, um, you talk about um, like the, the other, right? Um, and if you look at um, the story of Genesis, which is theology, right? There is this like, like first man right. and then woman. So could you um, just press into the nuance of that a little bit? Yeah. And then, and then the second thing um, is just like this is just like a lung full of fresh spring air. So oh, thank you. That's great. Yeah, this, okay, so the question is, so we're thinking about this idea of a woman as other with a capital O, and that's a bad way to see her, right? Um, but but the story of Genesis tells us the story of creation of Adam first, and then woman, woman Eve being created from his side. Um, and so uh, the question is, is that is that sort of just built into the theological stories we tell about where we come from, that man is default and woman is somehow the other, the exception from that. And let me just say one thing. There's a book, maybe there's a book all of you should read. I'm reading this book um, called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail, Abigail Favali. It's really outstanding. And she has much more theological training than me and does a beautiful job of thinking specifically about the story of Adam and Eve. Um, and for her, the sort of critical thing to understand is that like, 
of the mythological significance of this, right? I don't mean it's fake or it's false. I believe um, I believe in creation, but the sort of myths can be true. And the true myth here is that um, that Eve came out of Adam's side to be beside him instead of to be looked at by him or to be serving him, but they are next to each other. Um, and so there's difference, but there's not domination. Now, is that how people have traditionally read? No, and don't go read milk, it's not gonna help you out. Um, but, but I think that there is a kind of interpretation of the Genesis story where what you have is difference without domination and without um, the differences between men and women being essential difference, essential in the sense that there's something different between them that makes them fundamentally different kinds of beings. Because male and female, he created them, but both in the image and likeness of God. That, yeah, but that, I mean, that's such an important question. All right, yeah, Abigail Favall, Genesis of Gender, it's really good. We got time for one more? Okay. I, all right. Well, I was gonna say, I, JP asked me questions like 20 times a day in literature class, so. I'm sorry, I'm gonna pull rank here, I know, I wanna hear from Dr. Liu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dr. Liu was asking about Wollstonecraft's idea of marriage and that it's definitely too idealistic and it's these high aspirations for men and women of a, for a kind of moral excellence and everything's awesome. And um, but that seems unrealistic when we look at the way actual marriages work and the kind of work that we have to, we have to do a lot of laundry, okay? And we gotta figure out how to do a lot of laundry together. And that does not always feel like a school for virtue, right? And I guess, I mean, I, I guess I just wanna say you're right. I mean, I think she is overly idealistic. Um, I mean, part of this is reactionary, right? I mean, she, this is a pendulum that's swinging back and forth between a purely utilitarian understanding of marriage, marriage of convenience, simply for the sake of the maintenance of a household, which is a very good thing, and it is a very good way to grow in virtue, but she wants to sort of swing, she swings in the opposite direction, I think you're right. I think elements of what she has to say about marriage as a school for virtue, though, can be like a regulative ideal, like it's aspirational, this is what we're aspiring to. Um, and if we think about marriage as a Christian vocation, it's a vocation to holiness, right? So it's through the trials and the struggles that you get there, but the end goal, the purpose of it is to be sanctified, it's to help each other get to heaven. So in that way, like, you know, ideals can be helpful. Yeah, no, that's a great question, all right. Yes, thank you so much.
if I'm allowed to say this, you go girl. That was, <laughs> that, I mean that the best way possible. He's my boss. One of the uh, books I found in Monsignor Schuler's library was a dictionary of slang, just so priests know what they're saying. <laughs> it was quite hilarious. He had a lot of things underlined. I won't say what, but <clears throat> he ran a high school. He had to know what they were saying. 